I've been doing this podcast now for about three months, and I've learned a thing or two about songwriting. First, songwriting is really hard. It's work. It takes time. you got to commit to it. You can't just sit there and hope something comes to you. No, it takes hard work. It takes patience. Second, you can't force it. You can't fake it. You've either got it or you don't. And as I've made clear, I don't have it. And three, there are some people out there who are just born to do it. Like my next guest, the indie rock legend Paleface. Either it was right songs for a living or nothing. It's that cut and dry. Now, Paleface has been at this now for more than 30 years, starting out in the late 80s in New York. He was a big part of New York's anti-folk scene. Perhaps you heard of a few others from that era. The dean, of course, is the late Daniel Johnston, known for his do-it-yourself, lo-fi, low-tech approach to playing and recording. Daniel and Paleface used to hop around New York City doing open mic nights, and that's where Paleface will tell you that he first really saw how powerful music can be, the connection between the performer and the audience. There are a number of others from that scene as well. Michelle Schacht is a big one. The Washington Squares. The most well-known, of course, is Beck. We all know Beck. Beck had a string of hits in the 90s. But back then, Beck was rimming with Paleface, sleeping on his couch, learning how to do the craft together. And Paleface even had a close brush with fame around that time. He was on a major label, was touring with the folks like Billy Bragg or the Judy Bats, some big names, the Crash Test Dummies. But years of touring and hard living took its toll. After a while, Paleface in the mid-2000s moved with his partner and drummer, Monica Moe Samalot, to North Carolina to try to make a living as troubadours, a true troubadour. In fact, I'd say of all the people I've been talking with, Paleface personifies what it means to be a troubadour. Just pack up and go, record, tour, make money. So for this episode of Four Songs, I caught up with Paleface and Moe to talk about their latest album, Go Forth, which came out earlier this year, right before the pandemic hit. It's their first self-made album where, where Paleface and Moe recorded all the tracks on their own, wherever they could, either at home, on the road, wherever it made sense. And of course, right when they're hitting the road to support it, here comes the pandemic. We talk about four songs from that album, Into the Curve, Fashion or Feeling, Why Else Would I, and Exactly Everything. We talk about what it takes to live this kind of lifestyle, to write songs, to be truly committed to it. So while I'm thinking about it, be sure to go check out Go Forth. You can get it from their website, palefaceonline.com. It's available on iTunes and Spotify and all the places where you'd get music. Give it a listen after you listen to our interview. I think you're going to enjoy this one. Hey, Mo. Hey, P.F. How you guys doing? Good. How are you? Hi, Rob. Hey, Rob. The first question I've been asking just about everybody is just since we're all in this pandemic is just asking yep. how you guys are doing. How, how's, I mean, obviously it's affecting a lot, but how have you guys been able to stay sane? It's <laughs> been difficult at times. Uh, I'm just making another record and <laughs> doing, <laughs> you know, it's taking its own shape because I don't know when we're going to play live again. I think by keeping busy. He's been like, staying real busy recording and painting and I'm, you know, I do what we do. I, I do a lot of the social media and promotion. And so, yeah, just staying busy and keep, keep going. We, we still play our live streams. So we're rehearsing at home and we're really staying really busy. Yeah. PF, you've been at this for a while now. Yeah. How has your songwriting process changed back from when you first started? Or has it changed? Oh yeah. It's changed a lot. Now, I'm just more into the composition of the music. I want the songs to mean something, but sometimes even the vibe of the music can 
uh, dictate what the meaning is going to be of the lyrics. And sometimes it's even a thing where, you know, like there was one song on the record that I tried to sing and I couldn't really get it. And uh, so I gave it to Mo and she sang it. And it just it totally took on another meaning. And I think songs do that in general. Uh, some of my older songs don't mean the same thing as they used to mean. They have maybe more meaning now. Some have less. I, you know, I don't know. I, because I'm always thinking of the next song. You know, like the first record, I still get people that want to hear those songs just because I guess that was distributed by a major label and and it was that time in the 90s when if you were on a major label, your records got out if they believed in it somewhat, you know. So do you think the business is better or or is it, I guess, maybe easier for people to get? I don't know if it's but... better or worse, you know. I mean, you can look at it any way. It's definitely different. Um, and I think that there's, I was thinking about this the other day. It seems like there's more imposters now because there's a lot of artists that can just make music and make videos, and they've got like something going on, you know. They've got a few million views, and then they can't really play live, you know. And there's some big artists that, that I've liked a lot, not huge, but big artists that were headlining some of these festivals, and we went to see them, and they just – or we saw them and they just didn't have anything. That's definitely different. You know, that's the Milli Vanilli phenomenon. <laughs> uh, so we'll get to the record in, in a couple minutes, but I do want to ask a couple more questions, but just generally about, you know, who were your influences growing up when you first started writing songs? I know you've mentioned Daniel Johnson a number of times. Uh, well, M MTV was, a, was the big one. Okay. Because for me, I was late. I was out of high school and I was working at a gas station. I had flunked out of college I went to and uh, I, was, I was bored out of my mind, you know, just pumping gas for housewives basically during the day and them asking me why I wasn't in school and I'm, so I'm sitting there at the desk in this little kind of, you know, because this was uh, in the Northeast and they still had, there's certain states where you still don't pump your own gas. And uh, I was just so bored and bang on the banging like on the table just like rhythms and kind of making up little songs and then you know watching MTV all the time when I wasn't working and what I would do was all of the records that I had listened to in high school because I always liked old music didn't have videos so I would make them up in my head I, as I was listening to, like, these Led Zeppelin, mm -hmm. X or Jimi Hendrix or whatever, you know, because that stuff was cooler than Duran Duran and right. Boy George. You just, so I made, that's how I found out I was creative, because I was making videos for these old songs. And then I just started writing some stuff down and plinking on a guitar and, you know, slowly got into it. What was the best piece of advice you got when you started writing? I mean, Daniel... When I met Daniel, I guess he gave me, that's the only person that really gave me any advice. That, and I remember, like, I remember the moment when we were hanging out together in New York. I took him around to places like open mics and stuff. And he played, uh, 
at the speakeasy, which was like an old folk club that was hanging on. And I took Daniel there, and he played at the open mic, and he did his Broken Dreams song. And, man, you know, like, that was the first, like, holy shit, you know, this is this is what it is. It's real. This is the connection. You could feel it in the room. You could see people's faces. So that, like, was a lesson unto itself. And then just he told me, you know, like, just make tapes, get these Radio Shack tapes. You can get three for whatever. They were yeah. cheap. Just record yourself. Because what you think you sound like is not what you sound like. And so let's get to go forth. So we're going to be talking about for the songs, into the curve, fashion or feeling, why else would I, and exactly everything. So first, the phrase go forth. What, what does that mean to you, and why is that the right name for this album? I had, we, we were trying, we've been trying to make a record for a while. We went to Nashville, and we went to New York, and even Connecticut, different studios trying to make a record, and each time I didn't like it, I felt like, it just wasn't what I had in mind. And finally, I was just like, well, I got to do this myself. <laughs> How do you do that? You got to just go forth. You got to make the steps. I didn't know anything. I didn't know how to use the program even. I had a couple crappy mics. I didn't even know what an interface was. Well, little by little, started buying uh, components, and he started learning and kept going with it, and he went forth. And it seems like, to me at least, there's, a number of different sounds and instruments from your prior records. Is, did you have a, a greater sense of freedom when you were putting it, when you were two putting this together? I mean, oh, yeah. certainly. Because well, I've always had a lot of musical ideas, and going way back, I just put that on hold maybe too long because we were just a two-piece. And then the looper, I started looping, and then I was like, okay, now I can get more sounds, and now, you know, I really should. I've just got to use more colors because I have them in my head. I've got all these riffs. I've got different, you know, shades that I can use, and I'm going to – it's time to start implementing that. So how long did it take for these songs to take shape? It took a while. It took maybe two years from when I started to when we got it mastered. It's and a lot of that was because I didn't know what I was doing, and I had to work backwards. There was a couple arrangements that kind of suffered because of that. I feel like I, if I just had more time to let it just sit a little bit, I might have loosened up the arrangements a little bit. But for the most part, I think I'm pretty happy with it. You know, as a first record, as as like, okay, I'm going to play everything. I'm going to. I'm going to use my ideas, and here it is. Because I had some friends that that I could ask, you know, like we got Jason to mix it, and he is a professional. You know, he knows what he's doing. He's been mixing for a long time now. And then he put me on to John Greenham, who is the mastering guy, and he really helped me out a lot. I learned a lot from him. So, So let's get into the songs. We're going to start with, into the curve, which I feel like is an appropriate kickoff number, just given I think the, the theme lyrically, which to me it seems like is like a declaration, in a sense, like just this is you kind of found a way to do with all the, the shit. So 
this yeah. is what we're going to do instead. So is, is that kind of your mindset with this number was just... Well, it's funny with that because that's really, you know, when you put that song first, that's kind of what happens. <laughs> but it it had that, but it's also a moment because that kind of feeling that you that you always want only lasts a certain amount of time and then something else comes up that's a pain in the ass or a worry or you know like there's always like this thing you've got to get over the hump and then you get over it and then there's something else and you get that moment where you're like ah, perfect you know it's the perfect moment so it's like trying to hold on to that beautiful feeling that you got you know you can't you know you really can't but you know you you can experience it for a time And um, the music for this, how did it bring to the curve? How did it come together? Because what I noticed was there's just a real dreamy sound to it. And yeah. the bass loop, and it's just, it seems yeah. like you had so much at stake or I, to put in here, and it all yeah out. Yeah. It started with a jam. I. I would do this to Mo. She doesn't like it when I do this, but I'll have a riff and I'll start playing it on stage. And I'll have maybe a general idea of a song. I won't even, maybe I had, I didn't even have these lyrics. I had, a, the song meant something else. And uh, we just started playing it and it just had this groove. And then other ideas came in. You know, I would loop that main, that first riff that you hear is a loop. It just kind of evolved. Certain things evolve on stage. That's why we knew that we could play that one live because it, it started on the stage. And it's also the end where you, in the ending of the song, where you get into this twilight zone kind of moment where you're like, uh oh, <laughs> maybe mm-hmm. some, you know, there's that. I don't, I don't vocalize it, I don't put it in words, but it's kind of that, mm, I don't, I don't, this isn't gonna last. <laughs> And then I kind of did those uh, jarring like notes that were purposely not in rhythm just to kind of get get you out of that you know that warm kind of rhythmic bubble that i was in so do you hear that in your head when you're putting this together like i want to add some of these effects because sometimes i do sometimes i hear the exact thing that i want and then other times i know that it needs something and maybe i'll have i'll know it needs something low you know, like it needed that weird pe- uh, that weird keyboard bass 
that just went like, I knew it needed something deep underneath to kind of tie it together. But it, it, you know, it varies. Sometimes, sometimes you're really not sure. You know, it needs something, and you kind of stumble around for a long time. And if you can't find anything, it might be that the song really isn't very good. There's a lot of songs that have very, that are good and have good structure. You can come up with a bunch of ideas, and that's the problem in itself too. Because now you've got to censor yourself because you've got nine good ideas. Which one can you use? You can't use them all. And did this one come to, to you guys pretty quickly? I mean, you mentioned you were jamming on stage, and then it became this. So how how long did that process take? That's a good question. All of the songs were I sang last, so it was the music first. I might have had like there was a couple other songs that might have been songs like Fashion or Feeling even, that had a whole new set of lyrics. That had different lyrics. That was called I'm All Ears for a while. Yeah. And then it changed. You definitely went with the music, the sound. It changed part. because, you know, we had it, and then it took me two years to do everything. So by the time, you know, I was feeling something completely different, and I had a different idea. Yeah, that, I, I want to get into that a little bit, but I do want to ask Mo a quick question. So you mentioned that when you start jamming, that you, that drives Mo crazy. Mate, Mo, why why does that drive you nuts? I guess because you've got to keep up with, well, with the drum. Sometimes I just get I don't know, like if we're in front of people, we're playing a show, and he starts he throws me a song out of nowhere, and I was expecting another song, and and I don't know what he's doing. I don't know if he's actually writing something while we're on stage, you know. So maybe I don't really remember exactly when this happened, but I just probably got a little nervous because I was like, what's going on? People are staring at me. I don't know what I'm doing. And I don't, on the spot. Mo's yeah. on the spot. So, I mean, that happens. It's not a big deal. I just go with it. I mean, it's not like he even gives me a set list most of the times, although lately it's been a little bit better for the live stream. But uh, so I'm used to just kind of like not – just not expecting a set list. <laughs> just go with the flow and hope that the next song is the one I think it is. <laughs> That's good when we play because, you know, sometimes we play these kind of open air or we play long sets and it's sort of like, okay, maybe something, it's, it's like to kickstart maybe something happening. And that was definitely, Into the Curve was definitely one of those songs. Yeah. It's like everybody feels that, you know, like uh, the hell with all of that. And I like the image of the light shining through the cracks. Yeah, I, I think it's. A, I mean, I love the album. That's so they're all good songs. I like. I really like this one. But uh, I'd like to move on to fashion or feeling since we kicked it up a little bit on the last discussion. Yeah, I feel like you know this one has 
this is your traditional pale face, you know, the the, the deep, the, the strumming guitars. And, and yeah. uh, did this one come to you guys pretty quickly, though? I do want to, before I answer that, I, I'm curious, you, you talked about this became completely different from start to finish after you recorded. So if you don't mind, can you talk a little bit about how it changed so much and, and why it did? It started just as a riff, and the riff was because I remember this. We had some New Year's shows. We had like a stand where we did two New Year's shows. So we had a hotel, and I remember that Chuck Berry had recently died. And I was thinking about that. So I was just playing that. I was like sitting on the edge of the bed just playing that rhythm. It's a very kind of old school, you know, that kind of those early rock dudes. The drummers all had learned jazz and swing. So it had that swing to it, which was really cool. And so it ha so it had that. And then I was just thinking about just I wanted to hear some good news. So I had this like idea. I'm all ears. Give me some good news. <laughs> <laughs> and so we played it like that for a while. And then I just got tired of that. I just thought that was too something, you know. And when we when we got Mo put that drum beat on it and we got it swinging pretty good, I was into a whole nother place and we were interesting because we were talking about you know like Coachella I, I started thinking about Coachella and how there were a lot of artists playing n no reflection on them but they were just playing with their machines there's a lot of twiddling and, and not as much musicianship right now and it wasn't even that that was bothering me. It was that I, I would see these reports because I, I like to watch what's going on at Coachella. I like to, they always have it on YouTube. They'll have the shows. So if you're not working, you can see who's playing, you know, and, and you get to see that because we're, we're way too far away and not in that league. So they, and just, there was a lot of, a lot of stories just about kids going to be seen to be cool, like not even for the music, you know. And it was all about, like, getting your picture on Instagram or your channel, you know, so that you can be seen as a cool person at Coachella. And I was like, well, this isn't, you know, what's it going to be? Is it fashion or feeling? Feeling is more important, I think. Fashion can be an adornment to music. And, it, you know, whoever you are, if you're David Bowie or you're, uh, you know, Lady Gaga, fashion is important, but the music, Bowie's music lasted longer because it was good, not because of the fashion. The fashion was simply an adornment. And if you focus on fashion, you, you're, gonna, you're just, that's just like a plate without a meal. That's like mm. a spot a plate spice that has no meal to it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Kind of what I was kind of getting into. It's like the soul of it is the soul and the heart of it is the feeling, not the fashion. Back it up. Yeah.
And then I feel like it gets a little bit, to me at least, it gets a little wistful on the bridge. The, do you feel like it gets a little wistful there? To me, it, it seems yeah. like that. And I was also, one of my favorite old performances is Sly Stone at Woodstock. If you've ever seen that, it's fantastic. And he says that. He breaks down one of his songs and he's talking about uh, a sing-along or something and saying, you know, it might be old-fashioned, but just remember, it's not a fashion. It's it's more of a feeling. That was part of it, too. You know, I always, that always struck me as such a true thing to say. kind of feel that way too when I'm listening to the outro the old times and and that kind of music is maybe you know faded out but the feeling if you if you got the feeling you can still get something out of it good stuff so want to move on to why else would I and I've noticed you said that in some of the information that you guys sent earlier that you called this in a really personal one so what what then does this mean to you on a personal level? Because it is kind of a ballad. It's one of the only, I think, ballads really on this album, or at least I would call it a ballad. I don't know if you would. Uh... Another one where the music came first. I've got so many of these kind of little pretty, I could probably fill up a whole album with songs like that. And I had this music for a long time. And I remember Mo loving the music and saying, don't put any lyrics on it. Well, <laughs> I didn't need the, the lyrics when I first heard, you know, when he played me what, what he had recorded. I was like, wow, it's so beautiful. There's any lyrics. So when he put the lyrics, I was like, oh, okay, great. You know, I, I like, I love the message. I love the lyrics. But it was already a beautiful piece. So that was my Work, favorite. <laughs> I was working so hard. Like, all the stuff that we do, I mean, I had a schedule at that time where I was just recording. I'd wake up and I'd do recording until I couldn't maybe, like, six or seven o'clock at night and then I would chill for a couple hours. Mo would be making dinner and I would have like my two hours off and we would eat and then maybe nine thirty, ten o'clock I would start painting and then I would paint till like sometimes four or five o'clock in the morning. Wow. And then I just have days like that, just like weeks and then it went on for months and months and you know, and we were touring, and you know, if the the reward is in the doing because you know anyone can see that we're not a, a very popular. We don't have like a huge audience or anything. We're very so it's not DIY. Like, That's I think the main thing. It's, it's not like doing everything ourselves. So we we don't know how to reach like a yeah. I, audience, the the gate know? the gatekeepers <laughs> are the gatekeepers are not opening the gate for us. They're not interested in us. So doing all this stuff, why why else would I do it? It it must mean it, there must be a reason for me to have this much energy to be able to do this, you know. Mm-hmm. Like why else would I do this? 
Nostalgic and you I, think it's nostalgic? I, I don't know. It just, Could it's be, just yeah. kind of like <laughs> mood. I, I want to make we. I want to make it like a. I wanted to make a video that was a story or something, but it hasn't. Yeah. It didn't work out. I ended up making a video of him with his art, which is still pretty cool because you were painting when you were. Yes. I, I it's not my favorite song after I heard it. Oh, huh. finished. Of the whole album, um, I just think you it like has a lot of feeling. And you like this I, kind of yeah, I do. And on top of it, it's very pretty the guitar and all that. So. Well, I feel like your drumming mode really stands out in this one. That it, I mean, obviously the drums keep everything together, but in this one, I feel like it, they really stand out. Thank you. Maybe, maybe think, that's why you like it so much. You, you felt that I song, so you it, could. Yeah, I don't. You know, I like them too. <laughs> it's just really solid, yeah. kind of. Let's try it, especially. I mean, this album, I was just trying to play a steady, in-the-pocket, simple, I mean, it's kind of my style anyways, but PF was learning how to record as well, so I, you know, I had to do my best to keep it simple and get it done so he could move on and do everything else he had to do. And that was um, raw, too. That yeah. might be the first one that I put guitars on, and you can hear, like, yeah, you can hear that the guitars aren't really great. They're not recorded like amazing, but somehow it just does hit that so feeling. Yeah, so there was well. never any reason to change it. Like an engineer would probably, like a real, you know, somebody who's super professional would probably go, geez, that sounds raggedy, you know, because it really does. But that's, I, don't know. That's, I mean, I, I, mean I like old music. I always liked old music. Even when I was a little kid, I liked old music. And old music sounds raw. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you were talking about earlier in, into the curve. That if you're just there to press a few buttons and, and sit in the crowd, you know, anybody can do that, but it's that real raw or emotional thing. Like your voice, I feel like is emotional. At least when you sing the verse a second time, I feel you're really you're saying a lot just how you're singing it. Yeah, yeah. It's weird because when I started, I was really known for a lot of lyrics. I They would just flow out of me. And I can still do that at times, but I feel like there's not enough room in the songs anymore. <laughs> 
and I can't quite make them work anymore. I always like, damn, this is good, but I just this I can't do this. This isn't going to work. Well, I wanted to to kind of build off that a little bit, and as a someone who does both music and lyrics, I mean, where do you? This may sound like a dumb question, and I'm not even sure how to ask it, but where do you have to go mentally to mine this material? I mean, where does it come from? Yeah, that's the best songs. You don't even, this sounds very strange, but you don't even know that you're writing some of the best songs. You're simply transferring words onto paper and it's kind of that thing. It's the same with when you're really grooving on stage. You're not conscious. You're just doing it. It's just, and it feels good. And the best words are the same. It just sort of happens. And I, you know, I've heard it say a bunch of different ways, you know, like Springsteen waits. He just kind of like waits around in his house, you know, and it's like, torturous for him you know he has that kind of mentality i guess if you if you uh look at the documentaries about some of those old records where he's just so tenacious mm -hmm. or like uh tom waits who who's like a fisherman he's like yeah you got to be real quiet sit there don't miss the signs you know <laughs> i you know for me it's just and I'm starting to do that even with music and riffs and stuff. And it's really interesting the way you, you just pick it up and just do something. And you're not thinking about what you're doing. You're just doing it because your hands are moving and it feels right. And you're not making a judgment. You can't judge. You can't make a judgment while you're doing it. The minute you start to judge something, you're done. You're you're either not going to write anything good after that point, or you're not going to finish the song. It's also, if you can, finish it the first time when you first have the feeling. If you leave it, and I've heard a lot of songwriters say the same thing. You know, John Lennon even said that. Don't have an idea and then start and then decide that you can finish it later and call someone or, you know, make a snack or whatever. Finish it right in that moment because that energy is in you and the intent of it is immediate. And you can't recall it because you can never recall it. I mean, even songwriters like Paul Simon, who he, he allots times during the day for writing, or he used to. I don't know if he does it anymore. But he would just have a period where he would write. But that didn't necessarily mean that anything was going to come out, like, oh, I'm going to write a song now. No, he would just have those hours of the day blocked off. And maybe something would happen and maybe it wouldn't. You know, maybe he'd end up just picking his nose and nothing would. <laughs> it's physically, uh, what I found is it's physically impossible to say to yourself, I'm going to write a song right now and have it be any good. It's just, you just have to kind of... It's a, I don't know if it's a Zen thing or it's whatever they call. I'm sure there's some philosophy that could explain it better than I can. But you know, don't try, just do. Maybe something like that. You know, I mean, it's what you do, anyways. For me, it's what I do. I don't know why I do this. It, 
doesn't make any sense, really, because we're not, we're sort of, you know, financially, there's not, not any great reward. So it's, I don't, you know, but I just can't help it. Can't yeah. Help. So I greatly appreciate your time today. And I do want to talk about one last song, Exactly Everything. And again, this goes back to that catchy, just real bouncy, typical, like, PF sound, but there's just a bit more going on in the background. And I feel like lyrically, you're having a conversation with somebody. So I'm just curious how this one started lyrically for you. It was a good relationship song for me, you know, and it's a guy talking to someone could be a girl. The girl's talking back to him. that riff is so fun to play and I can loop it pretty easily and then play over it you know so that song can have we can jam off of it as possibilities and I just never heard a song called exactly everything I like yeah. that I like that as a phrase like <laughs> what do you want well I want exactly everything <laughs> I don't know I feel like it's also about accepting people for who they are. If you, if you love them, you know, this is me. <laughs> this is, and if you want to be with me, you know, it's the good, the bad, and all of it. Just nothing is perfect. We're only human. This is what you must do mm -hmm. if you want to be with me. Right. What to me what stands out about this song and just some of the other songs that you I think you're you're playing some big guitar here. I don't have you done that before on your early records? No, that's the thing. I that's what happened also during this period is I learned that I now now I'm also playing lead guitar, which I never did before. Even though I'd have all these riffs and it in the old recordings you can hear it here and there, but now it's really okay. That's what I was talking before about composition. I have all this stuff. I, that's another thing that I, I have my weaknesses and I have my strengths. And one of the things I can do is come up with riffs and, and, you know, that's kind of like that one riff is like a baseline kind of riff. holds it together and melds with the drums and then I can put melodies over that. It was really fun to do and I it's that main line which is a guitar that I have like a bass pedal so I it has some depth to it that mm -hmm. uh, I step on the bass uh, it's an octave pedal and it gives it more 
bottom end. Uh, it always kind of reminded me of an old R&B kind of thing. And I, I love the idea of all that old R&B. So where would you rank Go Forth uh, with your other albums? I read somewhere that you, you kind of called this your first record. Um, I feel that way just because I've made all the decisions. In other records and in different times, you know, I've made records for big labels with, uh, you know, big producers. I've made records with really cool indie producers and I've, you know, and just like friends who fancied themselves producers. But this is the first one where it's just me. I, you know, so like I really do feel like this is the first, you know, because time is really the best arbiter of music and composition. And you can dump a million dollars into a piece of shit, but it's still a piece of shit, and you can't fool all of the people all the time. And eventually, you know, the people that you fooled, they're just maybe casual listeners anyways, and they're not going to stay with you. So it's it's really time is the best arbiter, and they say time doesn't exist, so you can't argue with it. So that's really, really profound, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that's a good note to end on. Um, <laughs> I greatly appreciate your time. You've given me a lot of your time today, both of you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I, hope, I hope you can make something out of it. Let me once again thank Mo and PF for giving me so much of their time and you for listening. And as a reminder, you can go get go forth from their website, palefaceonline.com or Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get music. Go get it. See ya.